Good evening. Thank you, Randall, for that opening, besides the chapters 7 and 8. Is your faith real? I hope it is. All right, so this evening, the two chapters we have in front of us, um, separation of church and state and non-resistance. For a bit of an introduction, we're already halfway through the book here, um, Distinctive Beliefs of the Anabaptists. Part one, we saw the origin of the Anabaptists. Where did they come from? And now we're in part two, we're looking at distinctive beliefs of the Anabaptists. What did they believe? What, uh, what sticks out to you so far as we've gone through this study as a defining trait of the Anabaptists? I'm not going to do all the talking tonight. Yep, so persecution. Good, that was one of the defining traits of the early Anabaptists. Their desire to do and follow Christ. So their unrelenting desire to follow Christ. They, they would give up anything to follow Christ. Boldness, okay, good. Uh, a couple thoughts that came to mind, mind um, pacifism maybe, uh, with the non-resistance, you know, they wouldn't fight, uh, they wouldn't even stand up for their own life and fight for their own life. Martyrdom, they were willing to give their lives. Radical, they were quite different uh, from those around them, from the society around them. Rebaptizers maybe, uh, comes to mind with Anabaptist. Um, I remember a few of the teachers, I wasn't here every night, but some of the teachers asked the question, what made the Anabaptists able to survive and even thrive in the presence of all this persecution and pain? What was it about them that, that allowed them to continue? Um, they, they sure endured a lot. Um, Conrad Grebel, one of the, uh, he was one of the only ones of the initial five, I guess, that... Uh, that didn't die um, martyr. He, he died of the plague, but Felix Mons was, he drowned. He wasn't drowned by accident, but on purpose, he drowned. Uh, George Blaurock was burned at the stake. Michael Sattler uh, died by torture and burning after they um, cut his tongue out. How could a movement with such strong opposition continue and grow, even after all the leaders were dead? If you think about movements today, and uh, what happens to a movement after its leader is dead, usually the movement dies out. You know, um, if there's a, I don't know, if you take like the 9-11 attacks, I guess, out when um, Osama bin Laden was dead, that movement kind of died out. It changed and, you know. But here the, these leaders are killed one after another, but yet the movement continues. And um, the word that, came to my mind as I studied for these two lessons, and it's the thought I really want us to think about this evening is truth. Because the movement was based on truth, it could continue. The truth will always prevail. The truth will always win. Um, there's no variation from the truth that will withstand the test of time. Only truth will endure. We see many times in Scripture that uh, truth will endure forever. 
Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And in Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So truth, that is what could uh, cause this movement to continue. One of the greatest tests of truth is its ability to withstand an era of chastisement. Um, I hope by the end of the evening tonight we can all have a deeper longing to seek truth and apply truth at all costs. So um, chapters we're studying here, 8 and 9, uh, it doesn't mention the word truth in the titles, but uh, rather we see the results of the applied truth in the uh, lives of the early Anabaptists. This evening we're looking at two truths we find in God's word, the separation of church and state and the practice of non-resistance, and that's the titles of the two um, chapters this evening. So a little bit of a confession here, when I saw these chapters, uh, I think Kurt asked me to teach, and I said sure. And I didn't look at what I was teaching, but the separation of church and state thing, I come out a little different than a lot of people here, I guess, on that. Um, but we're not going to get into that too much, but it was good for me to study this. Um, but I kind of wished I would have looked at the lessons before I, uh, and maybe picked my date, I don't know. But anyway, um, so non-resistance, pretty straightforward to me. Um, separation of church and state, I'm, I'm still, I'm getting there. Uh, the church I was raised in, Meadow Valley Mennonite, it's Weaverland Conference or Horning, and I think most people there vote, including my dad. Um, so it makes me harder, makes it harder for me to come out at the same conclusion when studying for a lesson on this subject. You know, it probably shouldn't be um, how it is for us, but I think as humans we need to realize that we have presuppositions. When we go into God's Word, we have uh, what we think about the word before we start. And it's hard to put that aside. Um, I think we've all heard the story of the woman who cut the ham in half every Sunday. I think Liam might have said that several Sundays back. Um, cutting ham every half in, in half every Sunday for lunch and put half in each pan. So her daughter asked her why uh, she did that. And uh, she said, well, because her mom always did that. So granddaughter's over at grandma's house and she asked Grandma, why do you always cut the ham in half before, for Sunday lunch? And uh, Grandma said, because the ham was, didn't fit in the pan. I had too small of a pan. Um, so if there's something like that in my life that I'm you know, doing wrong just because I've always done it wrong, I want to know it. But yet it's hard to uh, go into God's word with no preconceived ideas. We'll all, uh, we all have our preconceived conclusions even before we start digging into scripture. And I don't think we can ever be free from that. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think as humans, we'll always have that. So I did my best in the study to not allow these ideas to affect my study of these two chapters. Um, before we dig into the chapters, let's take a look at the condition of the state and the church at the time period we're studying. So um, 16th century, 1500s, the uh, church and state, they've kind of functioned as one. Um, the church was as much a political institution as it was a spiritual institution. If the state wanted something done, they would work with the church. If the church wanted something done, they would work with the state. Um, a good comparison I came up with today was, it'd probably be like having, um, like we have our three branches of government. Back then they would have had two branches of government, the church and the state. Um, but it was both used to govern the people. 
Um, and as far as governmental control, I think it worked well for them. You know, they could uh, cause people to listen either by fear or by, you know, a moral, uh, uh, moral betterment or whatever for the church. Um, when I look at the condition of our society and government today, it wonders me if the morals that lack in our society would be better if uh, the church and state functioned a little closer together, but I know that's not uh, the answer. I think as we, as society would describe the church as a whole, oh, the church as a whole. So as society would describe the church, the church has lost its moral high ground. Maybe not our church, but as society would define the church, the church no longer has a moral um, position on the rest of society. To combine the church and state is to diminish the potency of both of them. When the church and state are combined, neither one has the power that it should. They're both diminished. The church loses her moral standing and the state loses its effectiveness due to the love that is expected by the church. So this form of government, it worked well until, as you should know by now with our study, the reformers started seeing corruption with the system. So then Ulrich Zwingli uh, started teaching and seeking truth with his students at the Gross Munster in Zurich. Um, the reformers and their later followers realized that both the church and state could function better separate from each other. They applied the truth they found in God's word. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. The church was not free from the state, and it needed to be. So a church free from government, that's what they um, sought, um, leaving the government free from church. The reformers realized this mandatory adherence of all the people to church principles was against biblical principles. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. There needs to be a freedom associated with the church. And in Mark eight thirty-four, then he called the crowd to him among with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. Biblically, we have a choice whether we follow God or not. It's not something that's forced on us, and neither should church membership be forced on any. And um, this is what they were fighting to be free from. Uh, we saw in chapter 7 that the, uh, the Swiss brethren believed in a free church, free to join, free to leave, free from state. It was a voluntary commitment to the practices of the church. This went against the norms of the day and caused the leaders of the church and state to lose some of the control in the population that they had maintained for centuries. You were born into the church um, at your physical birth and expected to follow the norms set for you by your leaders. Praise the Lord, this isn't how it is today. Or is it? Do we still have some of these similarities? Are you here because your parents raised you in a Mennonite church? Or are you here because you searched the scriptures, putting all the presuppositions aside that you can and found Myerstown Mennonite Church to be the most accurate church the Bible describes? Is this the best application of truth for you in your life? 
Um, I said we all have preconceived ideas when we dig into scripture, and uh, hopefully that's not the reason we choose to be a part of the free church of God. Um, and if that's not us, by God's grace, may we become that. So the reformers and the Swiss brethren, they sought truth at all costs. They strove to live their lives as closely as possible to their findings in scripture. They wanted, to fully, they wanted the church to fully embody its calling in the New Testament. Do we believe and apply the biblical truth of a free church? Are we grounded in truth? What stands the test of time? I'll let you all talk again. What stands the test of time? Not everybody at once. What do we tell people when we ask them what we believe? Oh, why don't we vote? Yeah. We're not part of the earthly kingdom. Right, truth. Truth in the Bible. Truth stands the test of time. Thank you. Are we seeking, or are you seeking, truth or tradition? Um... This idea of being an accurate description of a New Testament church got me thinking about what we base our values on. Um, if someone asks you why our church is different, why do we seem different than uh, you know, the churches that they know of in society, um, what do we point them to? Do, when someone asks us why we're different, do we point them to the Mennonite Confession of Faith or the Schleitheim? I don't know if I said that right. Schleitheim Confession. Or can we truly answer God's word? We're applying God's word as best we can, and that's why we're different. Other people apply God's word where it's comfortable and where they want to, but we apply it as much as we can. Um, and I mentioned these publications that we might place emphasis on. Um, it's important to note they're not wrong. Um, in fact, a quote I found from the book here in chapter 5 applies well. Their confession of faith such as the ones drawn up at Schleitheim and Dor Dorich, were not designed to define a theological system. Their purpose was to state a Bible-based position and apply the scriptures to the issues they faced. Their purpose was to state a Bible-based position and apply the scriptures to the issues they faced. So these documents that you know, expounded their beliefs, they're not wrong or bad. But let's be careful not to hold them to the same level as we do God's word, as the truths found in God's word. Um, so may our answer be when someone asks that our church is based on God's word. And if you want further explanation, you know, here's why we do some of the things we do um, based on this confession of faith. Um, when we're questioned about things, can we point to the answers in God's word? Um, so... Moving on a little bit here to the uh, to non-resistance. Um, so I work with uh, several different people of different religions um, or different applications of the same religion. I don't know. 
but the one guy I was flying with a lot lately is Baptist. He's of Baptist upbringing. So I'm reading my book uh, beside him, and we get to talking about these subjects of separation of church and state and non-resistance. And um, for those of you who know anything about Baptists, they come out quite different than we do uh, on the separation of church and state. I would think it's probably one of the biggest practical differences between Mennonites and Baptists. Either that or how fast they sing. I don't know if any of you have been at a Baptist church, but they sing very fast. Um, yeah, it still brings a smile on my face when I think about the difference in speed of singing with them versus some other more conservative uh, churches. Um, but they would consider it their civic duty to vote, and many consider it their duty to serve their country through the armed services. So we got on this subject of voting, and his response uh, surprised me somewhat. Um, so he... He, uh, he said, you know, he really doesn't have a problem with people who choose not to vote, especially if they see themselves having a predisposition to allowing politics to define who they are. And I think that's exactly what he said when we uh, were just talking about it. So a predisposition to allowing politics to define who they are. And I thought that was good. Um, you know, what a good reason for me to avoid politics because I, I think I would have a propensity to allow that to be, to define who I am. May we choose to define who we are with the truths found in God's word. Um, so anyway, in my conversation with him, another thing that I found interesting, he didn't even know what I meant by the term non-resistance. Like he saw that, you know, this chapter non-resistance, he's like, you know, what does that mean? We take it for granted in our upbringing to know what is meant when we hear the word non-resistance. Um, he understood it to mean a complete, a complete agreement to do whatever the government asks, non-resistance to government authority. Um, so I got thinking, could this be an accurate understanding of the word? Could non-resistance mean not resisting the government? But then my mind went on to the time period in which this book was written to expound on. So um, if we look back in history at um, the era that this book is written about, we have the Martyrs Synod, the Martyrs Mirror. These words come to mind when thinking about the founders of Anabaptism in this time period. Um, you know, they were non-resistant in our understanding of the word. They didn't take up weapons to defend or attack. But... They were very resistant to the government's overreach and the government's hypocrisy that they saw. They couldn't have been more resistant to it. Um, they gave up their very lives for resisting, for the sake of resisting the government. Granted, it wasn't their goal to resist the government. Um, it was only their goal to seek after and apply the truth as they saw taught in God's word. But resistance to government, you know, caused their death. They didn't just bend over and do whatever the, uh, the government wanted. They, they held firm to truth. If they were non-resistant to the government in this uh, thought, they would have simply recanted of their pursuit for truth and, uh, you know, did what the government wanted. But no, they were far from this understanding of non-resistance. Their non-resistance that led to their death was based on the truths we see in Christ's words in Matthew 5:44 and Luke 6, 
27 and 35. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And Luke 6, 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the thankful and to the evil. The early Anabaptists were non-resistant in that they didn't fight against the government, but their resistance to compromise on the truth of God's word cost them their lives. I'm sorry, say it again. What does the verse non resist mean? Um, a, a quote I have later, uh, and we'll get to it, but non resistance is love absorbing the wrongdoing of others. So, you know, if someone does wrong to you, do we, Responding with love and allowing love to absorb their wrongdoing. <clears throat> the early Anabaptists were non-resistant in that they didn't fight against the government, but their resistance to compromise on the truth of God's word cost them their lives. We're called to comply to our earthly government institutions so long as it does not go against our pursuit and application of truth found in God's word. Is your life centered on truth? What would change in your life today if faced with certain death as our forefathers were? What would change in your life today if faced with certain death as our forefathers were? Um, why not change that today? Why wait? Truth will result in confrontation and sometimes even persecution. Um, the next section I'd like to look at is purpose in persecution. Persecution is to be expected for the believers. It's in the truth of God's word. John 15, 19 through 20 says, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So persecution, it's, it's in God's word. It's to be expected. 2 Timothy 3, 11-12. Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and, what, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And uh, a couple more here. First Peter 4, 12-14. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, 
He is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 12, 9 through 10. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So that was just four of the scriptures I found. There was a bunch more, but that was the four best ones that I you know, wanted to share tonight. Um, where to expect persecution. So um, the guys we've been studying, Grebel, Mons, Zwingli, they believed that God had a purpose for their persecution. They knew it was to be expected as a follower of Christ. They knew the truths found in God's word. Um, often when I, would, when I was younger, when I'd read The Martyr's Mirror or uh, you know, hear of accounts of the early Anabaptists, I would often think that, boy, the church back then must have done a really good job at like making sure its members listened. You know what I mean? Like they died because their church made them stand strong. But that's not the case at all. It wasn't the bondage of the church that kept them faithful. It was their personal search for truth and seeing God's plan for the persecuted in scriptures. You know, the church didn't do a great job at enforcing its beliefs on the members um, so good that they wouldn't recant even with death. No. It was an individual um, search for truth. Um, you know, the church back then, it, the church gets the credit because these guys are the church. But it was their individual faith that made them strong. And it was the individuals together that made the church. Um, the church is only a gathering of individual believers. Each ind individual believer must, uh, each, each individual believer back then chose truth over life. They, they chose to um, follow truth over having their own life. So what does non-resistance look like today? And here's my quote that I said earlier. Love, non-resistance is love absorbing the wrongdoing of others. Non-resistance is love absorbing the wrongdoing of others. And uh, I found that, I think, in this book here. No, I found that on the Anabaptist website or something. I forget. I should have noted it. But non-resistance is clearly taught in Scripture. Um, Matthew 5, 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but who's, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And Romans 12, 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Matthew 5, 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Um, one of the things that Mr. Burkholder, David Burkholder, brought out here in this book um, to apply non-resistance to us today 
was the absence from litigation or lawsuits. Absence from lawsuits. Um, you know, when you look back in history, they always assign uh, names to certain parts of history. You had, you know, the Dark Ages. I didn't research this, but you had the Dark Ages, and then you had... Anyone know what came after the Dark Ages? Anyway, you had these names assigned to periods in history. And uh, if time tarries long enough, if the world's still here, that we can put a name on this time in history, uh, I wonder what it's going to be. Um, we live in an era where there's no responsibility for anything among the general population. Like, they just are completely irresponsible and expect to benefit from it. Um, in the time of the reformers, the populace was controlled by the church and the state. Now it's controlled by the attorneys and the state. When you drive down a highway, um, it seems most of the billboard signs are, or a lot of them, are advertising personal injury lawyers. Everyone wants to make a fortune on their own misfortune, sometimes even their own ignorance. Um, praise the Lord, we can live above this selfish, carnal mindset. This is not something we as Anabaptists are to take part of. Non-resistance today includes abstaining from litigation against another. Obviously, we can't help it um, if someone sues us, but we do see in Scripture what our response is to be. Anyone know the uh, reference for the verse of our response, if any man sued it to law? Ah, very close, 540. Unless my notes are wrong, but I think 540. Um, and if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Are you applying the doctrine of non-resistance in all areas of your life? Are we willing to be persecuted, if necessary, to main our position on the truth of God's word? Our Anabaptist forefathers were persecuted, but it was certainly not in vain. And by that persecuted, are you willing to, to go above and beyond and, and give extra if someone will sue thee at the law? Um, our Anabaptist forefathers were persecuted, but it was not in vain. On page 23 of the, this book, we see written of Michael Sattler in his Search for Truth. Um, a defining trait of these men that we considered the Anabaptists' forefathers was they didn't have identical beliefs, they didn't have identical ideals, but they had an unrelenting, um, unrelenting search for and application of the truth. Looks like I'm going to finish a little early. So I'm going to ask some of these questions from the book here. Um, what is the foundation on which the doctrine and practice of non-resistance is based? What is the foundation on which the doctrine and practice of non-resistance is based? Christ's teachings, yep, yep. So there in Matthew 5. What are the concepts and characteristics of those who are a part of Christ's spiritual kingdom? 
By their love. Yep. So Christ's law of love and peace is what I had down. Um, our love for one another is a, a defining characteristic of those who are part of Christ's spiritual kingdom. Um, we already looked at Matthew um, 5, 39 and 44, the reasons the Anabaptists gave for not taking up arms, Christ's teachings. Besides refusing military service, in what other ways will the principles of non-resistance be expressed in our society, in our lives today? We talked about litigation, lawsuits, we won't be involved in that. But what are other ways that we apply the principles of non-resistance today? Yep, very good. Unions and uh, marches. Uh, we've seen a lot of protests, marches, demonstrations lately uh, in society. But that is not part of the non-resistant um, way of life. Yep. And the principle of non-resistance, love and submitting, allowing someone to have, uh, you know, their way, whatever that might be, submitting to um, those around you. Yeah. So obey the government, whatever they ask of us, unless it uh, contradicts the truth of God's word. Um, do we, are we willing to do that? What authority and responsibilities did Christ give to the church? Sorry? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> what produced the Anabaptist view of the relationship of church and state? The truth of God's word. It was based on truth. Their view of the relationship of church and state was defined by the truth they found in God's word. 
So we described the uh, relationship of the church and state for many years prior to the Anabaptist movement. They functioned as one entity, kind of one government with multiple branches um, of the same government. All right, so um, in conclusion, what are the truths that we can apply today in how the early Anabaptist church related to the state? The Swiss Brethren, anybody care to name all five? Maybe all together we can get all five. Grebel. Sattler. Felix Mons. George Blauerock. And I didn't write them down because I thought we'd get them. I thought it was five. Um, they didn't wait for the state to agree with their application of the truth. Um, both Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther wanted to wait for the state to bless this new understanding of the truths taught in God's word. They didn't want to split from the, um, the norms of the day. They wanted to maintain the ties with the state and with the government. Um, but these men went out and applied the truth as best they could, regardless of what it cost them. And we see it cost uh, most of them their life. May we apply truth at any and all costs and not wait for earthly government to bless the truth. God's blessing is, is enough for me, and I hope it's enough for you. It should be. So I hope you're encouraged this evening to strengthen your personal belief in the truth found in Scripture. Um, and the church here at Myerstown does a great job encouraging members to live holy and righteous lives. But the fact is, no amount of church discipline can ever replace a personal commitment to seek out truth and apply that truth in your own life. Um, you know, if there's something that you question why we as a church do it, seek out the scripture and cleave to the truth you find there. Again, no amount of church discipline can ever replace a personal commitment to seek out and apply truth in your own life. All right, looks like we'll get done a little early this evening. Thanks for your time and attention. I guess we have time for a song.